Welcome to the Unpacked Project. We're your hosts. I'm Noelle. And I'm Miranda. We're here to explore all things social justice. It's through casual conversations, interviews, and storytelling that we hope to inspire others to take action towards a more compassionate and equitable world. Because honestly, it kind of sucks here sometimes. (laughs) For real. We can do better, people. All right. Let's start unpacking. Hi, Miranda. Hey, Noel. <laughs> Take three or eight oh for this God. episode. I'm sorry. I feel like we do just have to give our listeners some insight into what has occurred and how amazing Dr. Simmons is, who we are interviewing okay. today. This is literally our third attempt. We record through Riverside, which is usually an amazing platform to use. And there have been upload issues the past few weeks um, that we've been having. Yeah. And we just stopped recording multiple times yeah. because there's some sort of <laughs> issue. So we are now on Zoom. Yeah. Um, and thank you to Dr. Simmons who's sticking by us today. Mm-hmm. Um, the content has been amazing listeners and um, we are excited for you to hear it today. So let me bring her in. Dr. Amina Simmons is senior staff at ASU Counseling Services where she also serves as the strategic outreach and inclusion lead for her passion, commitment, and dedication to supporting BIPOC populations both within and outside the doors of the center. Dr. Simmons obtained her PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Miami. She also holds a master's degree in educational and counseling psychology from the University of Missouri, Columbia, and a bachelor's degree in psychology and Africana studies from Pomona College. She operates from a strength-based model of community partnerships, utilizing therapeutic interventions that recognize and address both trauma and resilience from early childhood to present, with an emphasis on racial stress and women's wellness. Operating with the belief that collaborative conversations actualize change, Dr. Simmons is committed to building strong relationships where others feel empowered to access and maximize their potential in ways that align with their values and purpose. Dr. Simmons, thank you so much for joining us today for the third time. (laughs) We really appreciate it. Um, Can you please share more about yourself and what led you to this work? Of course, of course. Thank you so much for having me um, and for being patient with yourselves, right? (laughs) So I am a Black woman raised by my mama and grandma who are both more melanin gifted than I am, as I like to say. My grandma is a retired social worker who grew up surrounded by cotton fields in North Carolina. I didn't understand the significance of that until I was about 13 years old and finally put together that the cotton fields we drove past on the way to my great grandma's house were the same ones that slaves once worked. My mom is a retired law enforcement officer and prior to that, she was part of the United States Marine Corps. Discipline was a non-negotiable in our household. And later I learned that some of my mama's strong arm parenting was a result of the racial stress she experienced as a black female officer in a predominantly white male agency with jurisdiction over the most historically racist parts of our county. I've never met my father who I'm told is white and based on my skin, eyes and hair, I believe there's some truth to that. (laughs) I don't identify as biracial because it doesn't align with my lived experience. I was raised by two Black women with my, for the most part, monoracially Black family, and we lived in predominantly BIPOC neighborhoods to include the schools that I attended. I didn't become comfortable firmly referring to myself as a Black woman until I began taking Africana Studies classes in college and understanding the impact of my racial identity as both personal and political. 
To say I identify as a Black American woman means I take all the wonderful aspects of my community's history, as well as all the past and continued painful moments. I know this is a lot of context and context is so important. I promise I'm getting somewhere. I'm often asked to speak about racism and its impacts on our well-being. I've noticed that being transparent about the salience of my identity as a Black woman and being willing to address the light skin privilege I have and the responsibility I take on to utilize my voice in support of my community because of that privilege helps to dispel some myths and assumptions about me. Sometimes it just leads people to develop other assumptions. What folks don't usually know is what it's like to rub against your mama's arm because you don't understand why you can't have the same brown skin as the rest of your family or why it's so important that in this picture of my second birthday that we have, I'm holding a baby doll and she's black. What folks don't usually know is that before people ask me my name, the question I get often is, what are you? Just like that, as though I'm an alien. And when I learned that alien was a derogatory term used to describe immigrants and I wasn't born in the United States, I began to feel concerned about this question in a whole different way. What folks don't usually know is that I had an actual conversation with another person of color, believe it or not, where I was asked, why would you say you're black when you could pass for white? Those experiences are exhausting and painful. And I continue to do this work because while I cannot go back and erase the pain for me personally or my community, I can be intentional in the way I understand and share my identity with others. My identity influences the questions I ask, how I understand the world and the work that I do. That stance of intentionality often leads me to some really fruitful one-on-one -on -one conversations and group dialogues where I get to partner with folks in holding space for themselves as they're curious about the painful and exhausting moments as well as the moments of resilience. Curiosity about myself and the way Black folks, in particular Black women, experience stress linked to their racial identity is what brought me to this work. Intentionality is what keeps me in it. Thank you so much for that. You know, same thing I said before when we finished this question is there's so much value in our lived experience and, <clears throat> you know, we get to be curious about who we are and why we are the way that we are and, and the messages that we've received to make us who we are and these beliefs that we, the, that we hold, you know, so thank you so much for that. And, you know, speaking, <laughs> speaking on, um, you know, passing through cotton fields, right? Like that is such an experience for anybody having lived in California you know, never seen a cotton field in my life. And now moving living in Florida and driving through them, like that's such an experience that people won't understand until they experience it, you know, and like so many of the things that you just shared. So thank you. Um, you know, we've talked about these different models of identity development, particularly for white people. And our hope is that people start to understand, <clears throat> excuse me, the dominant culture of whiteness in this world and that they work towards decentering themselves and to become anti-racist. Recently, we started to explore identity development for people of color as well, because we all have work to do within this world, you know, to achieve an anti-racist world, right? So can you tell us more about the actual process of racial social socialization and how people of color can begin to form a sense of self? Absolutely. So first, I want to say thank you for that work reviewing white identity development models. It's a common misconception that anti-racism work is the sole responsibility of marginalized peoples. And that's false, since we didn't create these social constructs designed to oppress. The question you're asking about racial socialization is a big one. 
And since you're not asking me to refer to the identity development model of a specific people of color group, I'm gonna talk about one model that was developed in an attempt to bring together some of the common features across different racial and ethnic identity development models. And that's the Racial and Cultural Identity Development Model, or RCID, which is an expanded version of the Minority Identity Development Model established and revised by Atkinson, Morton, and Sue between 1979 and 1998. The RCID was first expanded in 1990 and revised again in 1999, and this is by Sue and Sue. So according to Sue, the RCID defines five stages of identity development that oppressed people experience as they struggle to understand themselves in terms of their own culture, the dominant culture, and the oppressive relationship between the two cultures. The five stages are conformity, dissonance, resistance and immersion, introspection, and integrative awareness. As the scholars laid out the model, they go through how at each stage an individual is experiencing different attitudes toward themselves, toward others of the same minority group, toward others of a different minority group, and finally attitudes toward the dominant group. The RCID reminds me a lot of the revised cross-negrescence model, which focuses specifically on Black identity development. When thinking through models of racial identity development for people of color, it's important to understand that the scholarship has evolved to ensure that we're not outputting theories that suggest people of color are immediately in a state of psychological dysfunction with regard to their racial identity, and that's often characterized as self-hatred. Not every person of color experiences internalized self-hatred linked to their racial identity, and even for those who do, their experiences can be unique to their geographic location, family of origin, their individual understanding of community values and traditions. I mean, the list really does go on. So when thinking of racial socialization, the first question we're really asking ourselves is about an individual's race salience, or how important and integral race is to a person's approach to life. Once we start to understand more about how salient a POC's racial identity is, then I'm starting to ask questions along the lines of who taught you that, right? Mm -hmm. And the that I'm referring to could be attitudes, beliefs, culture norms, traditions. Again, it runs the gamut. Asking about learning is something I find often catches folks of color um, or people in general off guard and causes them to pause. In my opinion, framing racial socialization through a lens of learning is particularly helpful for POC who do hold internalized racist beliefs about themselves or others. Because if you learned it, then that also means you can unlearn it. And we get to talk about the benefits and pitfalls of learning and unlearning on our sense of self. I know that answer is somewhat broad, similar to the broad strokes of the RCID model, but the breath is an intentional resistance to collapsing the POC experience into one frame that can oversimplify or leave out critical experiences of oppression based on different racial and ethnic groups, sociopolitical histories within the United States. Thank you so much for elaborating on that model. Our last episode, we we brought it up and we kind of went through um, the stages and some of the um, perceptions and thought processes, you know, during each stage and what we might see. Um, but you did it in such a more meaningful and articulate way. So thank you for that. We really do appreciate it. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we talked about is when we think about identity development, it's really happening within the context of white supremacy, right? 
Um, and when you start doing the work, it becomes apparent how much of our society is rooted in these white supremacist norms and values. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Du Bois, sorry, I always want to say Du Bois. Do, yeah. <laughs> it's like, then I hear people say Du Bois, um, referred to double consciousness as the internal conflict that marginalized people face living within an oppressive society. Can you explain this more and the impact that it has on psychological well being? Absolutely. This is an interesting question. <laughs> And it's also such a hard question. If you are my professors, I'd definitely be asking, what's the page maximum? You <laughs> can tell how my classmates maybe felt about me in college. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am also gonna say, I'm not gonna pretend to be an expert on W.E.B. Du Bois, although I have read The Souls of Black Folks, right? And his article in The Atlantic, where this term and his experience was laid out, right? The way I understand this concept of double consciousness is viewing yourself through the lens of the other. In this case, the other is the dominant culture, also known as whiteness. If what you've been taught is that the dominant culture thinks negatively of you, then we run the risk of internalizing a lesser than mindset and also the potential of developing patterns and behaviors in an attempt to strive not necessarily to be white, but to be seen as acceptable by whiteness. Now, why would we be doing this? Well, this isn't unique to people of color per se. This is something that, especially in my clinical work, even in my mentoring work, in all relationships really, because everything is a relationship, I've come to believe in this notion that people long to be known as they are and loved as they are. The kicker is that people also fear that if they are known as they are, then they won't be loved as they are. In the case of this question, the as they are part is racial identity. So I'm black and both know and am known as black. However, if I'm viewing myself through the lens of the other double consciousness, then I also know that they, i.e. white folks don't like me and won't accept me because I'm black, an identity that I did not choose and cannot change. But I want to be accepted because we all do. But if they know, then they won't accept me. So what do I have to do to be known and accepted? This is crazy making, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, how are we going to get there? Because the problem is white supremacy, right? Which says, you ain't us, and you ain't ever going to be us. But it also says, because this is how systemic oppression works, keep trying, though, right? Keep trying, though. Because when you hold the power to oppress, then you can convince those who are marginalized that they can work to gain your acceptance all the while knowing that you never have any intention of granting it to them. And that is a white supremacist tactic mm -hmm. and a strategy, because then what you are doing is slowly with generation by generation of folks trying to make themselves acceptable, you are erasing culture and traditions, and you are burdening folks with the stress of trying to assimilate to get as close as possible to whiteness, so then they'll be accepted, and that stress has immense health implications, contributing to health disparities and mortality rates for people of color. And that has never been true, that we can make ourselves acceptable to whiteness. Mm -hmm. That will never be true because whiteness isn't the authority. Mm -hmm. Every person of color, every black person needs to know that you are loved and you are accepted as you are, period, as soon as you took your first breath. And I'm not talking to white people right now because enough of y'all know and have people telling y'all you're enough and the standard. I'm talking to the people who don't know who they are because they've been lied to and they deserve to know the truth. Mm -hmm. And even, <clears throat> thank you so much. For, I feel like every time you speak, I'm like, thank you so much. Um, you know, but and even people of color, black people, I'm thinking of my black female friends specifically, you know, 
um, who, who have received messages from their family and their loved ones of being loved. But even with that, you still have to combat everything else that you're receiving in the world, right? And that's hard work. Even when you're raised up in a foundation of love and acceptance and seeing Black role models and activists and people that look like you and you have Black baby dolls and all this great stuff, you know, it's, um, it's work that you have to do every day, right? And you really have to look internally to dismantle that um, and look externally at the messages that you're receiving. So I really appreciate that question or what you posed about um, framing learning as a question for both white people and for ourselves as people of color, right? Um, and I think that's such an actionable way that we can start moving forward, right? So, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have my question pulled up. <laughs> so, you know, we talk about Intersectionality? Yeah. <laughs> so intersectionality comes up so often on our show, right? Um, and your, your research has focused on the Black American women's experience of race-based traumatic stress in particular. And we know, you know that's such a large factor in our lives um, because of what we're going through. So what have some of your findings been from that study? Awesome. Awesome. I, I love this question because I love talking about, right, the AAW Speak study. It was just so good. Um, I have to give so much honor and gratitude to my committee, my advisor, and most importantly, my participants, right? These Black women, man, they shared their stories, our stories. It's, it's an interesting kind of experience to sit with Black women and hold space for them to just be present with them. One participant said to not expect anything of them, right, in that moment. It's powerful stuff, and I'm gushing now, so to better answer that question, I'm going to go over what my research questions were, and then I'll highlight some of the findings. So the research questions I attempted to answer were, what are African-American women's experiences of race-based traumatic stress? What is the current status of African-American women's psychological well-being? What are African-American women's health service utilization behaviors? And is there a relationship between African-American women's experiences of race-based traumatic stress, psychological well-being, and health service utilization behaviors? To put my findings in context, this was a sample of 135 self-identified African-American women between the ages of 25 and 62 years old, recruited primarily online through social media, Black women's affinity groups, and professional networks. I use Black and African-American interchangeably. There's a whole spiel about why I do that in this study in particular, but as you can already see, I'm a talker, so I'll save that nugget for now. <laughs> These 135 women were asked to complete a survey with measures of demographics, their use of health services, their psychological well-being, and their experiences and reactions to racial stress. This study was something called mixed methods, where I'm collecting quantitative data, that's phase one, and qualitative data, phase two, in the same study with the same participant pool. Each woman who completed the survey was asked if she wanted to be part of a follow-up interview. And of that 135, I had 54 women express interest in being interviewed. Truthfully, I think that's one of the first key findings that isn't technically part of my results, the immense interest in sharing our stories. I just didn't have enough time to interview all of them. So then another interesting thing to note about the phase one survey sample is that almost half of the participants were currently in the South Atlantic United States. So those are the states that border the Atlantic Ocean, like Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware. This stands out as important because it calls into question, does racism look different based on your geographic location in the US and or the histories of black folks within that region? 
Additionally, this was a highly educated and gainfully employed sample. So over half the women held master's degrees and 87% were employed at the time of the study. Black girl magic, okay. Mm -hmm. We typically think of educational attainment and employment status as protective factors, but the literature suggests black women with a college degree or higher actually experience more racism. So then my first research question focused on black women's experiences of race-based traumatic stress. And many of the racially stressful experiences described were complex and almost half of the sample endorsed their most memorable experience as traumatic. So meeting the criteria of it being out of their control, unexpected and negative. Black women's self-esteem appeared to be the most impacted right after experiencing these events. And when asked about their reactions when remembering the events, symptoms of avoidance were the highest, which is congruent with the literature that notes avoidance is an extremely common trauma response. My second research question focused on psychological well-being, and I was intentional about choosing a measure of positive mental health to combat the typical deficit approach. On average, Black women in my study reported experiencing positive mental health two to three times per week. And I think it asks you like within the last month, right? What's positive mental health, you might ask? So this is feeling happy, interested, or satisfied with life, thinking that you have something to contribute to society, having warm and trusting relationships with others, things like that. The third research question focused on Black women's use of healthcare services. In general, the women in my study regularly sought out primary care. Lack of availability seemed to be the most common reason for delaying care, and mental health counseling was the second most commonly delayed healthcare service after dental care. Participants were not explicitly asked if they were seeking healthcare services due to the stress of racism, and future studies might benefit from making that connection um, more explicit to better understand African American women's health behaviors, right? So my fourth and final research question focused on the potential associations or relationships between racial stress, healthcare use, and psychological well-being. There's a whole bunch of statistics jargon I could say right now, but for folks who want to read that, my dissertation is online and it's open <laughs> access. Me, anyone with Google, <laughs> I already started. <laughs> right. So the bottom line is, I did not find a relationship between race-based traumatic stress and healthcare use. I did, however, find that racial stress accounts for a significant portion of the difference in Black American women's psychological well-being. Yes, Black women are resilient, and they are also tired. I mean, down, right, exhausted. Mm -hmm. As a helping professional, it's important for me and others in my field to understand this because it allows room for a preventative versus reactive approach mm -hmm. to supporting Black women's wellness by encouraging the continued use of active coping and providing space for Black women to just be themselves. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a summary of phase one, the survey portion. Now, phase two was individual interviews with Black women. And man, this was just, again, I'm so honored to have been a part of this work. So I used a research method called Interpretive Phenomenological Analysis, or IPA, because I wanted to provide a space for Black women to share their experiences of racial stress without constraining their authenticity. This method allowed for their truths to emerge thematically, which helped me to better understand Black women's experiences through the context of their realities. Based on my understanding of phenomenological research, it was less important that the emerging themes mapped on perfectly to my research questions, and more important, that they captured the essence of what racial stress is like for Black women. The first theme I want to highlight is related to Black women's experiences of racial stress, which they actually name as constant. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That's the word that some mm-hmm. participants use. There are quotes throughout my dissertation from the women that paint these vivid pictures and the imagery of racial stress as a burden that black women carry was also something I consistently heard, sorry, (laughs) throughout the interviews. I can hear their voices in my head sometimes when I go over this. The second and third themes that emerged were related to black women's reactions to racial stress. And they shared that the impact of these experiences is often not a choice. So one woman shared feeling compelled to respond aggressively because racial stress evoked anger. And another woman, on the other hand, talks about shock and, in a sense, freezing during an instance of racial stress. And both of these women also shared feeling shame or embarrassment around these automatic reactions, even though they could acknowledge that they didn't experience them as within their control. Still related to reactions then is the third theme, that Black American women's conscious or active response to racial stress is often strategic. Black women in the study described being strategically composed during racist interaction, racist interactions, which in and of itself can be stressful, having no room to express, for example, justified anger. One of my participants calls it righteous rage. <laughs> <laughs> The impact on our health is significant, like increased risk for hypertension as a result of racial stress, which was a reality for some of the women in this study. Mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm just like, oh my gosh, she's telling me all about myself right now. Having <laughs> <laughs> an internal moment. <laughs> right? So then the fourth theme, right, to, to, to bring it back is about coping right, with racial stress and support through connections with other Black women was consistently identified as helpful. Mm-hmm. Having space to acknowledge African-American women's roles as healers and their responsibility to perform strength was also consistently discussed. These dueling responsibilities can create confusion about where Black women can seek help. Mm-hmm. I love the way one woman put it, we are help, so we really don't know where to get it. Mm-hmm. For the Black women in this study, support through sisterhood was in many cases used in conjunction with or in lieu of therapy, Mm -hmm. reinforcing the importance of formal, informal, and intergenerational sister circles where Black women can receive validation from each other. During my time in college counseling, I facilitated many of these circles, and some of the most powerful moments revolve around that validation. Mm Yes, that happened. No, you're not crazy. And what do you need from us? Mm -hmm. Since Black women are more likely to take recommendations from people they trust, groups like Sister Friends that continues to run at Cal State Long Beach or WALK, which runs at Arizona State University, can normalize help seeking for black women Mm -hmm. and it can serve as a stepping stone for getting to a doctor or a therapist thank you for being patient with me oh thank you (laughs) and you know I feel like this work is even more powerful when it's personal Mm -hmm. and like truly felt and you know you can tell like you you do this work and you feel this work Mm -hmm. obviously it's your you know it's your lived experience like when you said I can hear the women's voices like in my Mm -hmm. head you know it's just it's so powerful Mm -hmm. what you do um I one of the things that really drew me to your work is your focus on strengths and wellness 
Um, and one of the things we talk about on, on this podcast a lot is so many of these stories and experiences, if people come on, they're vulnerable, they share pain or they share trauma, um, but often it's the learning of it is, well, what have people done with that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what have they turned that into? Um, and so you really advocate for interventions that recognize and address trauma and resilience. Um, you know, you, we talked earlier in your intro that you you come out of the strength-based model of community partnership. Um, so what does that look like? And why is it so important when it comes to supporting positive racial and ethnic identity development? Yeah, yeah. You know, what this looks like is a great question. <laughs> I think it can and does look different depending on where I'm positioned, you know, my actual job and what the institution and the leaders who I work for believe about community partnership. So for as radical as I can be, <laughs> I'm big on asking for permission because a solid relationship, I find, helps to move things along, even within intricate and complex systems mm -hmm. like institutions of higher education. I really value pushing institutions of all kinds to live up to their potential. Mm -hmm. I'm paying a lot of attention. I ask a lot of questions immediately. And the, the idea is not to negate current leadership or condemn people in power and say, you're doing this wrong. Not at all. The idea is to say, let's take a look at what you're doing, ask some questions about the sustainability of our current process, not from a business standpoint, from a relational standpoint, mm -hmm. and then ask ourselves, are there ways that we could be doing this work better, meaning prioritizing the relationships? Because institutions, again, like across the board, are positioned as power players, meaning they have so much to offer the community and the community has so much to offer these institutions, right? Mm -hmm. So how can we go about creating mutually beneficial relationships that challenge the exploitative history between institutions and marginalized communities in particular? This shifting of our priorities is important because of the significant and justified mistrust that communities of color have in institutions that they are expected to be part of. It's expected that folks will attend school, mm -hmm. at least through high school, and college is becoming more and more of an expectation. It's expected that you'll participate in the job market and obtain housing and vote. Why not put forth institutional resources, money, networks, mentors, scholars, organizers, change makers to promote the empowerment of marginalized communities through partnership? That means co-creating knowledge and programs. Mm -hmm. That means adjusting folks' contributions based on their capacity so that it's equitable, not necessarily equal. Mm -hmm. And that focus on equity contributes to justice, which is how we break the cycle of oppression. And I could argue that oppression is what contributes to this lesser than mindset, to race salience that is negative. That's why this relational style or praxis, if you will, feels so important to me. I'm not sure that there's a straightforward way for me to answer this question, but in case the communities and folks I am privileged to serve and lead are unsure if their experiences count as knowledge and capital, I want them to know it does. Mm -hmm. That's what true partnership does. And that growth fostering relationship is protective. Thank you. I know, thank you. <laughs> it's like, that was our final, I mean, there's a couple more questions. They're kind of wrap up questions, but you know, there, I personally, I was like, don't cry, Miranda, don't cry. Um, because everything that you said, you know, and, and Noelle has encouraged me as well, right? Like through this podcast and through this work, 
um, you start to realize more about yourself, right? It's kind of inevitable. And if you want to get better at what you're doing, you have to dive deep into this work, right? And so, you know, you have me thinking of my, I have a sweater that says sisterhood is how we survive. Yeah. Yeah. You were wearing it during one of our episodes. It says sisterhood is how we survive. And one of my girls from home got it for all of us. There's a group of six of us from college and we're all Brown women. And, you know, it, it is such a safe space and it is a space where you can be vulnerable and you feel acknowledged and heard and you can go and say, am I crazy? And people will lift you up and say, no, you're not. Like I've been through that as well. Um, and so I think the power to be vulnerable and, and share our stories and our experiences so we can connect with each other and also educate other people is so powerful. And I am so appreciative of you sharing all of that today, as well as your education as well, right? Um, so I know you're not on Instagram, but <laughs> where can we want more of you? Where can we find you on social media? Where can we read your work? Where can we find you, Dr. Amina? That's, so, you know, that's a really good question. You're probably more likely to find me on LinkedIn. I am okay. like that nerd, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, I try to, you know, get boundaries are important, right? Yes. I encourage everyone to have like their first personal and professional selves, um, especially as a helping professional, as you can mm-hmm. imagine, that's um, a fine line that I draw right between my clinical work and working with college students and things like that. So LinkedIn is a great way to find me. I, I try to put links to things that I've done on my LinkedIn profile so that people are able to access them. As I said, my dissertation is open access. I encourage people to go there, not because I want to hype myself up, but like like scroll all the way to the references section and like mm-hmm. find a book mm-hmm. or an article or something that you hadn't read before and like educate yourselves, yeah. right? I I go through this a lot when I'm um, engaging with white colleagues, not necessarily like in my current position, right? But just like across the board. And it's mm-hmm. like, not our responsibility to educate you either, especially those of you that are attached to institutions of higher learning. They got libraries and books yeah. and the, just things at your disposal. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that is kind of how you'd be able to connect with me. LinkedIn okay. would probably be a, a good fit. Those two. All right. Sounds good. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so thank you so much. We appreciate it. We were just talking about that in our last episode about ownership, like yeah. white people and people in dominant groups, like knowing that it is important and necessary that they do the learning and that they seek these resources out for growth and for change. Um, and again, just for your vulnerability and knowledge and everything today, um, I could sit here and listen to you for, at this point, we have been together for hours. We so appreciate your time and all the work that you're doing. Um, we say to a few people that come on here, like we'll probably be in touch again and hopefully we yeah. can, you know, record again. Um, you just have so much to share. So if you're okay. open to it, I'm sure we are going to connect again in the future. <laughs> Um, so thank you so much, listeners. Uh, we have next, uh, well, in a couple of weeks, uh, I always say next week, it's yeah. every other week, uh, Dr. Miles Durkee, who apparently Dr. Simmons yeah. knows. <laughs> These relationships are so funny um, in the work, although like you said, it's probably a small pool of, of people doing this work, right? And so um, Dr. Miles Durkee will be coming on and speaking about racial code switching and the implications of psychological, on psychological well-being and mental yeah. health. I'm just explaining what code switching is and why uh, people of color engage in it Mm -hmm. um, and the outcomes of that. Mm -hmm. So really excited for that interview. Um, So again, thank you so much, Dr. Simmons and um, listeners, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. 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 
Show the Unpack Project some love and be sure to like, subscribe, and review our podcast. You can also check us out on Instagram at the underscore Unpack Project. And if you enjoyed today's episode, visit our website at theunpackedproject.com, where you can make a donation that supports the research, production, and operating costs of this work. Shout out to all of our listeners who unpacked with us today. See you next week. Peace. (laughs) 